Good morning again. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 will be our sermon text for this morning. We have been working through 1 Peter for, uh, well, with a small break for a number of months now, and uh, we're, we're, we're getting there. We're in chapter, chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 this morning. Uh, before I read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that you would, uh, that you would speak to us this morning, uh, that you would remind us of our Savior, and teach us uh, how we are now to live as your children in the world, that you would guide and direct us in those things, uh, that we would listen. Uh, we pray that you would give us uh, obedient hearts, uh, that we would be uh, children who, who listen to the direction of our Father. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us to those ends this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter 4, beginning with verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Family life is hard. You get up every day and you bump into other human beings. Uh, You get in one another's space. Someone takes the last piece of cake or the last scoop of ice cream. One person is too loud. Another is too fidgety. Sometimes people are grumpy and they take it out on one another. Sometimes people are are touchy and easily offended. Uh, Conflict happens. Competing desires, conflicting goals, contrary personalities. The unity in community sometimes can be in name only. How do individuality and community relate to one another? Sometimes these two are are pit against each other. uh, As if I can either be a vital part of a community or I can strike out on my own and find myself. I can either live for my good and my glory or the community's good and the community's glory. You see, the assumption is that the good of the individual is opposed to the good of the community and vice versa. And some conclude along with uh, Spock, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Much of our contemporary culture, of course, would disagree with that because we, we value individuality of a sort. And so, uh, at least the stereotype is, traditional cultures value community and put the community needs ahead of the individual. Modern cultures value the individual, and so uh, each should put his own needs ahead of the community. I guess there's probably a larger philosophical question here, but for our purposes, the question is, uh, how do individuality and community relate in the church, that is, in the family and the household of God? 
To rephrase the question a little bit and to, to change the terms of the question, we might ask it like this, how do self-realization and self-sacrifice relate? You may not like the language of self-realization. I, I understand that. But what I mean by that is simply becoming who you were created to be. By self-realization, I mean something very different from the modern view of self-fulfillment. And by self-sacrifice, I actually mean something slightly different from the common view of self-denial. But Hopefully that will become clear as we go on. But how do self-realization and self-sacrifice relate The short answer is that self-realization comes through self-sacrifice, which is another way of saying you become who you are meant to be by loving someone other than yourself. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Uh, Here's what Peter is saying in our text this morning. The world as we know it is coming to an end. Therefore, remembering the time, love one another to the glory of God. That's our outline for this morning. You can find on the back of your bulletin. Remembering the time, love one another to the glory of God. The world as we know it is coming to an end. Therefore, one, remember the time. Now tell me if this has ever happened to you. Uh, It's 8.35 on a Sunday morning, and you planned to leave at 8.30. You walk into a child's bedroom and they have just dumped the entire contents of four toy bins onto the floor and they are playing happily in the center of the chaos. You, forgetting the Bible's call to patience, say, what are you doing playing on the floor? We have to leave for church. Don't you know what time it is? Which, of course, they don't because they can't tell time yet. (laughs) Uh, Knowing the time changes your behavior, or at least it's supposed to. And so Peter begins here in verse 7 by saying this, The end of all things is at hand, therefore. Saying life as we know it is about to come to an end, therefore. Now, not everyone wants to think about this, of course. Uh, In the parable of the faithful and wise steward, which uh, we read earlier, I'll read it again. Jesus says this in Matthew 24. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their proper food at the time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that the key element in the difference between the two servants is about timing. The wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed. The time of service or stewardship is coming to an end, Jesus is saying, and we ought to be ready. Do you realize what time it is? Uh, Peter will say in his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter must give us this reminder. The end of all things is at hand. He has to give us that reminder because it's so easy to forget. 
Sometimes we forget just because we get consumed with life. We get sucked into what's going on around us. Sometimes we forget because we want to forget. We don't want to believe that we will be held accountable at some point. We don't want to believe that, that a judgment is coming. And so we say, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There, there are no consequences, no repercussions, just, just death and then nothing. Don't worry about it. And Peter says, no, the, the end of all things is at hand. Something, something is coming. For others, the thought of the end of all things is fearful. Uh, if much of our culture doesn't want to think about the end at all, some Christians use the coming end as a stick to beat struggling Christians into submission. You better be ready or else. But Peter's already explained what he means by the end of all things. He began his letter with these words in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And later he said in, in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, there is something more coming for God's people. A living hope, an inheritance, a salvation, grace at the return of Jesus. And so the end of all things, therefore, is not a bad thing for God's people. It means the end of their suffering, the end of their trials, the end of their rejection, the end of their pilgrimage and exile, and so the beginning of life in all of its fullness. And so rather than ignoring the end or living in fear of it, Peter wants us to be self-controlled and sober-minded, meaning we are to have clear thinking and acting in light of our situation. And Peter gives us, really, in this whole section, both the, the uh, activity and the end. Uh, that is, both the what we are to do and the why in light of the coming end. He says we are to love, in verse 8, for the glory of God, verse 11. And so, Christian, in light of the coming end of all things, in light of the fact that the, the world as we know it won't continue on forever, what will it look like to act in a disciplined and sober way? It means loving one another for the glory of God. Now, that's not uh, what Peter says first. He says something else first. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Um, I've struggled a bit to understand why Peter goes there. Uh, part of it is this. If we don't understand the time, if we're not thinking soberly about the time in which we live, that this world is coming to an end, that Jesus will return... That, that a judgment is coming, that we will receive our inheritance, our thinking about the present time will be wrong, and so our prayers will be distorted. If we think that this world is all there is, that, that what is will always be, then, then our focus will likely be on our present suffering. It's got to stop. If, if what is will always be, then we want to change it right now. My prayers will focus on my situation, changing it. Because there's nothing better to come. Maybe I'll even uh, focus on the situation of others if, if you're maybe a little less selfish than I am. What will it look like to think properly about the time? 
If you know that the end of all things is at hand, that is, if you know uh, that what is won't last, that Jesus has risen, that Jesus is reigning, and Jesus will return, if you know that Jesus might step back into this age and put things right at any moment, suddenly my current situation is not the most important thing because my situation will change at any moment. Jesus will step in and make all things right. And so I can pray differently. I can pray for others. I can pray for myself and others rightly. And not not that all our troubles will immediately come to an end, but that God will give us the grace to endure and to love others to his glory in the meantime. And so this brings us to our next point. The world as we know it is coming to an end. Therefore, remembering the time, love one another. Now, in our day, we are are likely to believe, consciously or unconsciously, that self-fulfillment should be our goal. Every aspect of our culture tells us that, right? The entire entertainment industry, the food industry, the clothing industry, our educational institutions, even our political institutions, they all give us one consistent message. Your life is about you, and don't let anybody tell you any different. Don't let anybody tell you how to run it, and don't get anybody in anybody else's way. The one sacred value is the sovereign self. The one taboo is imposing yourself, your ideas, your values, your morality, your religion on someone else. Pursue your passions, right? Follow your dreams. Be who you want to be. And sometimes in response to that, you have what you might call a doormat Christianity. This is where who you are really doesn't matter. And your individual personhood is irrelevant, This is the, you know, just volunteer for everything, do a little more, give until it hurts kind of Christianity. You minimize yourself for the sake of something higher, whether community, morality, religion, or God. One pursues self at the expense of any genuine community, and the other pursues the community at the expense of the self. And I I don't think it will be a surprise for you to hear me say that that both are wrong. There is another way, a better way. There is something other than self-fulfillment or self-denial for its own sake. The self-realization that comes through self-sacrifice. As we give of ourselves for the good of others, we actually become who God intended for us to be. We become more ourselves as we give ourselves away. Now this shouldn't actually surprise us because it's a basic principle of the gospel. Jesus said if anyone would save his life, he will lose it. And if anyone loses his life for Jesus' sake, he will find it. And this is the principle we find embodied in Jesus. Jesus went to the cross, the the quintessential act of self-sacrifice. He gave of himself for the good of others. But in so doing, Jesus didn't cease to exist. Uh, He didn't lose his identity or his personhood. In fact, actually, uh, Jesus has been known for this one act of self-sacrifice for about 2,000 years. And so, in a sense, he became who he is through it. But, but more than that, it was only through his death that the resurrection came. And so by giving himself for us in his death, he literally became who he now is in his resurrection. Without Jesus dying for us, he, he would not have become the living one, the one who has overcome death, the one who has become, as Paul calls him, life-giving spirit. You become who you are by giving yourself away for others. That was true of Jesus, the resurrected one, And it's true of us as we follow in his footsteps. Now, now the biblical word for this is love. 
To love another is to give yourself for them. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Or 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To love is to give of yourself for the good of another. So Peter says in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And he then spells that love out in three ways. First, he says love entails forgiveness. Verse 8, he says love covers a multitude of sins. Now, some have actually taken this to mean if you love, your sins will be covered. But Peter has already told us how our sins are covered. 1 Peter 2, 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Peter doesn't mean you cover your own sins by your love for others. We don't don't love in order to be forgiven or to earn God's love. We love because he first loved us. Peter means that when we love someone, we will cover over their sins. He means not in a redemptive sense, but he means that we will overlook them, that we will forgive their sins. Sometimes Christian think, Christians think that if I'm really loving, I will play the role of a, of the, a policeman in everybody else's life. I'll, I'll go around pointing out everyone else's sin. In Matthew 18, after all, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And yet there are lots of qualifications to that. Uh, first, Matthew 18 says, that, that's when you're sinned against. Uh, second, Jesus says we must take the speck out of our own eye first. Third, Paul says, you who are spiritual should restore such a one uh, in in a spirit of gentleness. That is the spiritually mature uh, because the immature end up being tempted in the process of confronting others. Fourth, uh, Paul encourages us to speak the truth in love. So the timing and the manner of our speech are qualified by love. And yes, if you see a brother or sister caught in some sin which is doing irreparable harm to them or others, by all means, speak to them. But if we know the depth of our sin, and if we know the patience of God with us, we will be ready to cover over sin as often as not, to bear with it, to overlook it for another's good. Self-love, of course, is very interested in pointing out other people's sins. It gives you a sense of superiority, right? Well, at least I don't do that. And even self-righteousness, look at how good I am helping this poor soul toward godliness, Anyone who has lived in home, a home with siblings for very long knows uh, that they delight to see their brother's or sister's sins rather than their own. When often true godliness, loving, is love, loving others the way God loves us, would overlook sin. And when it can't be overlooked, of course, it would lovingly confront and forgive The second love entails hospitality, not only forgiveness, but hospitality. Peter says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's a lot that we could say about hospitality. In fact, some of us read a whole book about it this fall. At the heart of it, though, hospitality essentially is, is going out of your way to care for the needs of another, even when it is inconvenient or costly or an imposition, even when it uses the resources that we would otherwise spend on ourselves, we spend them on the other person. Hence the, the, the need, the exhortation to do so without grumbling, right? If I'm spending my resources on you, money I would be spending on me, on you, and it becomes inconvenient and it drags on, 
Well, how quickly do we begin to grumble? We forget the cross, of course, that Christ gave of himself in costly and inconvenient ways. It wasn't convenient for him to become incarnate. It wasn't convenient for him to bear sin on the cross. But such is his love for us that he was willing to go out of his way to suffer and die. And so we sing about what wondrous love is this. Think about these two things. Love overlooks the sin of my brother or sister. Love seeks the good of my brother or sister, even when it's inconvenient or costly to me. And Think about a community like that, uh, where every person was quick to forgive and seeking the good of the other. I mean, wouldn't you want to be a part of, of that kind of community, a, a, a community in which you felt accepted and cared for despite your sin? Deborah and I uh, watched the, the 80s sitcom Cheers, and... Uh, you know, part of the lyrics to the theme song. You remember the theme song? Can you sing it in your head? Um, part of the lyrics to the theme song go like this. You know, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. And I always feel a kind of longing and sadness about those lyrics. I want to say, yes, but... Yes, but, but the fulfillment of that, the, the, the fulfillment of that longing, right, the, the high point should not be in a bar. <laughs> I, I don't have anything against bars. I, it shouldn't be in any other kind of establishment either, right, not in a soccer club or a classroom or even a neighborhood association. The height of such acceptance should be found in the church, not that, we have any, not that we have nothing to say about sin, but, but fundamentally we know our troubles with sin are all the same. And rather than nitpick, we overlook when we can, and when others are in need, we reach out and are willing to be inconvenienced for their good. This is just baseline Christianity. This is what the church should look like at its core, and of course that doesn't even cover what comes next. Love is quick to forgive and, and quick to show hospitality. It's also quick to serve. Verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Now, Peter says a number of things about service here. He says, As stewards, we are to serve others by God's power given to you. Um, we are stewards of grace, he says. A, a steward is not an owner, but someone entrusted with the oversight of something by the owner. We have been entrusted with grace, Peter says, meaning God's gifts of power to serve. The way we steward those gifts is by serving others. We use what God has given us to serve others. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. We do that uh, not in our own strength, of course, but by God's power. Peter says that explicitly in verse 11. He says, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. But it's implied, of course, by the very notion of being stewards of grace, God's power for service. God has gifted us to serve. We serve then in his strength. But as stewards, we serve others by God's power given to you. Here's what this means. God has given us certain gifts. Each one of us, verse 10 says. Meaning each person in this room has certain gifts from God. Those gifts are abilities, talents, uh, powers, right? Superpowers, right? We all have superpowers given by God. 
Paul lists some of them elsewhere. They might be things like the ability to to teach or exhort or be generous with your time or money or show mercy or exercise administrative gifts and so on. And the point is not so much to get bogged down in labeling what gift you have. Uh, There's no complete list in the New Testament, actually. They're all suggestive. The truth is we all have many gifts from God. God has given each of us certain uh, time and talents and treasures and all uh, all of which we're to be stewards of by serving others. And here's what I think we need to emphasize for the moment. When it comes to, when it comes to forgiveness, uh, that's a call on all of our lives. Uh, when it comes to hospitality, meaning a willingness to be inconvenienced in costly ways for the good of others, all of us are called to that. But when Peter begins to talk about serving and giftedness, he says we are stewards of God's varied grace. Meaning, each one of us has been given different things we are called to steward. Paul lists, uh, Peter here lists just two things, speaking and serving. Given the lengthier lists elsewhere, it seems clear that Peter is giving broad categories. In modern times, we talk about uh, word and deed ministry. That's what Peter's saying here, speaking and serving, word and deed And here's the question for each one of us, right? What has God given you that you can use to serve others? Or or even better, who has God made you to be so that you can give yourself away for the good of those around you? Uh, This is where self-realization comes through self-sacrifice, right? As As we give of ourselves who God has made us to be, As we give of ourselves for the good of others, we actually become who God intended for us to be. We become more ourselves as we give ourselves away, as we employ those gifts, as we use them for the good of others. Because God has made us to be a blessing to others, we fulfill our calling through service to them. If you pursue self-fulfillment through self-realization, it will never work. You become who you were meant to be by loving someone other than yourself, by seeking their needs ahead of your own. If you try to somehow unlock your potential, as we put it, uh, locked away in your own dreams, all by yourself, you can never fully realize that potential. Right? The potential God has placed in you is the potential to serve, whether in word or in deed. And so what has God given you? What has God given you with which you can bless others? Who has God made you to be? How do you go out into the world and serve him? Now, this is not, we shouldn't think of this just in terms of like, well, I'll, I'll go to a soup kitchen on Friday nights and serve there, right? Sure, you, you can do that. That's great. But, but this, is, this is all of life, right? This is your vocation. This is your calling. This is whether you are a, a doctor or a lawyer or a garbage man. This is whether you are a husband or a wife or a mother or a father, right? How do you give yourself to those around you? Christians who, above all, keep loving one another overlook a multitude of sins, invite others into their lives, and discern and develop and deploy their gifts, the gifts that God has given to them for the good of those around them. As they lose their life for Jesus' sake in those ways, they find it and become who they were meant to be. Again, this is the way of the cross and the resurrection. So take up your cross and follow Jesus. The world as we know it is coming to an end. Therefore, remembering the time, love one another. Give of yourself for the good of those around you. 
to the glory of God. Everything we do, we do for glory. This is true, actually, of all people all the time. Beauty is glory. Fame is glory. Ice cream is definitely edible glory. <laughs> everything that tantalizes, excites, everything that moves us is, is glorious. We want to get it. We want to enjoy it. In modern society, my goal is, is my good and my glory. Maybe in more traditional societies, our goal is the community's good and the community's glory. The one neglects the community, the other the individual. But Christianity teaches that neither the community nor the individual is the end. The end is the glory of God. Right? Why do we do all this? Why do we love one another? Why do we forgive? Why do we show hospitality? Why do we use our gifts? Peter tells us, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who is to be glorified? God. God is to be glorified. How is he to be glorified? Through Jesus Christ, meaning we can only glorify God because of the work of Jesus. Jesus acting for us in the cross. Jesus acting in us by his Holy Spirit. Why is God to be glorified? Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Right? As the cre creator and sustainer of all things, everything we see and touch and taste and enjoy and delight in, it's all his. Every glory is his glory. He created it. He oversees it. He sustains it. What does it mean then to glorify God? And his glory is ultimately the, the sum total of his greatness. We cannot add to his glory any more than we can take away from it. And so what does it mean then to glorify God? Well, it, it means things like to describe his glory, to acknowledge it. It means to delight in his glory, to marvel at the greatness of who he is. It means to define it and, and all things in light of it, to allow the reality of God's greatness and his wonder and his awe and his power and his might and his mercy and his love to shape the way we see everything else. It means to depend on his glory, to live in such a way that shows dependence on the greatness and the power and the grace of God. It means to display his glory, to, to model our lives after him, to imitate him. As Paul often says, things like, forgive as God has forgiven you. Welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. Love as you have been loved, and so on. It means to devote ourselves to God. Because the greatness of his glory makes him worthy of our whole lives. And so to glorify God is to do everything we do in a way that shows how great God is, in, in that what we do... But we do for him and, and like him and independence upon him and marveling at him and acknowledging him and his grace in all things. And what does Peter emphasize here? Loving others by serving them with what God has given you, that is giving of yourself for the, the good of others, to live in such a way... Uh, <laughs> loving others in such a way uh, is, is what we're called to. To give of ourselves for the good of others, that is love. Uh, we love others for God's sake. As we imitate his love displayed in the cross, in dependence upon the power of his spirit, as we are moved by the display of his love, acknowledging the greatness of his love, even as we seek to imitate it in seemingly small ways. The world as we know it, Peter says, is coming to an end. It's not going to last forever. This age is temporary. Jesus is coming back. Your suffering will be over. Fullness of life is yet to come. That said, remembering the time, 
love one another to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that, uh, that you love us, that you have shown your love to us in your son Jesus. And we thank you that uh, though he went to the cross and died for sin, you raised him from the dead. We pray, Father, that we would marvel in your love and that we would take up our cross and follow Jesus, that we would seek to give of ourselves for uh, the good of those around us and for your glory. We pray that we would do this not in our own strength. We know that we don't have the strength uh, day by day. We, we, we prove again and again that we don't have the strength, but uh, we trust in your power and in the power of your spirit to be at work in and through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.